0: You're listening to Tune FM on 106.9. As of the 1st of July, Australia has become the first country in the world to permit MDMA and psilocybin to be prescribed for controlled clinical use. The Therapeutic Goods Administration, otherwise known as the TGA, officially announced the change back in February. MDMA, more commonly known as ecstasy, can be prescribed for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin, the psychedelic active compound in magic mushrooms, can be used to combat treatment-resistant depression. The two drugs have been recategorized as Schedule 8, controlled drugs, meaning they must be kept and stored under strict conditions. Both drugs are subject to stringent eligibility criteria and can only be prescribed by psychiatrists with approval from the TGA's authorised prescriber scheme and who can provide a valid clinical justification as to their use in patient groups. Patients will also only be able to access the drugs in supervised and clinical settings, not home use. Prescribers will also need to provide a proposed treatment protocol which indicates desired dosage and number of therapy sessions. I am delighted to be joined by Professor Susan Russell from Swinburne University to discuss the treatments, the approval process and the impact this will have on patients. Professor Russell has expressed concern as to the speed of the approval process and lack of recognised training for therapists in this area. Professor Russell works in cognitive neuropsychiatry and has been actively involved in Australia's only clinical trial testing psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, giving her invaluable first-hand experience in this issue. Professor Russell, thank you so much for joining us on air. Not a problem. Nice to be with you. So, I understand that you have some concerns as to the speed of the approval process. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I Firstly, I'd like to tell the listeners, you know, I wouldn't be working in this space if I didn't think it had promise. Um, I think that this is going to be a really useful intervention long term once we've completed doing all the research. And that's the key thing. We haven't completed doing all the research. What The way that I explain it to people is when we take a drug to market, and it doesn't matter whether that drug is for cancer, for heart disease, for asthma, whichever, whichever drug it is, um, it has to go through rigorous medical testing and they we do this through a series of um, clinical trials and they go through phases phase one phase two phase three and when we've done all the phase three testing we've got all the safety parameters uh we know who's going to benefit from this treatment we know what the risk profile is we can tell people what their adverse events and side effects are etc 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 these two medications don't have phase three trials in australia um uh, they ha- we're only working on a phase two trial for psilocybin for, uh, for psilocybin for treatment resistant depression there has been one phase three trial for in PTSD but it's internationally and so uh, obviously that is a little further ahead so I am just a little bit more cautious maybe maybe the international data is good enough to use in Australia but certainly there's been no phase 3 data for any um, treatment um, condition for psilocybin
0: so you think we've jumped the gun a little bit in authorising them for prescriptions?
1: Yeah, so, so my standard statement is it's premature. You know, we're, we're just not ready for global rollout. There are so many things that we need to know before um, global rollout. We need to really have um, very um, uh, uh, well-worked-up well safety protocols. We need to know what the risk profiles are. We need to know who to recommend this treatment to and who to not recommend this treatment to. And the reason I say this is when when you look at the data from our trials, but also the international trials that have been um, published, one of the things that you see is this large range of effect sizes. It's a scientific term, but basically how better people get. So some people get amazingly better. And that's why we say that these compounds have promise. Other people don't seem to change at all. And other people actually have a really terrible time and might actually have more severe symptoms than they had in the first place. So what does that mean? So that means that we need to really understand who to predict will benefit from this treatment. And we just don't have the data for that. So there are there's another reason as well why we need to predict who's going to get better because it's expensive. It's really expensive.
0: I think you um you, you that that leads perfectly into another question I was going to ask you. What is the expense of this treatment? Do we know how much it's going to cost patients who are looking to access it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so just to explain the treatment to your listeners as well, because, because uh, once you explain the treatment to your listeners, you can understand why it's so expensive. So, all the treatment consists of is it's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Okay. And so that's the critical component here. The psychotherapy is really important to the treatment efficacy, to making sure it's successful. So the psychotherapy is usually maybe three or four hours before a dosing day, an entire dosing day, which is six to eight hours, and then another maybe three, four, up to 10 hours after the dosing day. So what we're often talking about here is 20 hours of psychotherapy alongside a dose of the psychedelic compound. And this isn't just with one person, it's with two people. It's with the psychiatrist that's the authorised prescriber, but it's also often with another um, psychiatrist, but more often with a psychologist that's very experienced in psychotherapy. And without the psychotherapy component, this just doesn't work. So, you know, this is why it's expensive. So in total, you're paying for 40 hours of psychotherapy plus the compound okay so when we've done calculations it costs between 20 and 30 thousand dollars because also you have to have it as an inpatient and then there's all the costs associated with the inpatient admission it's expensive
0: is that twenty to thirty thousand? That's per session, I presume. And is there a um? Is there, I presume there's going to be more than you know for patients that are looking to access this as a treatment? You're going to be going through more than one session.
1: Day. yeah, yeah, so you- Abs- absolutely. So the the recommendation is two dosing, two dosing days. So you know it's it's super expensive. And so one of the other reasons I also say um that that the the decision was premature is because without the phase three clinical trial data, Um, the PBS, so the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, will not review this as an intervention. They have no data to review it on. So it will not go on the PBS and it will will only stay in private clinics. And I have a real equity issue with that. You know, I don't do research to, you know, only release it to a, a small number of people that have got lots of money. People with mental health conditions don't have lots of money. And I want to make sure that people with mental health conditions get the best care and the best treatment that they can I want this to go on the PBS so that's what I, you know so I see that there's so there's so many problems here with with this early rollout
0: and that, that's exactly right. You know, as someone that, um, if you're uh, speaking as someone who has battled depression in the past and still do, the mm-hmm. um, you've got, if you've got a, a treatment that could potentially be effective, but it's going to cost you for two dosing days, say anywhere from like 60, 80, even 100 grand, that's completely and utterly prohibitive. And that's yeah. actually something else I was going to touch on. Do you think that the levels of control and expenditure relating to the prescription and treatment of this drug are justified and valid? Or is it just going to act as, a prohibitive barrier for people that are looking to access care, and I think you've—I think you've answered that. I think you've answered that already. That it, it's going to be something that only the—the the, you know the top one percent, three percent, five percent of of, pop, of the population will be able to access, which is not ideal to say the very no. least.
1: No, 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 but this is one of the reasons why I'm doing the research that I'm doing because if it has got the efficacy that we think it has for some individuals, I want to go it want it to go on the PBS. Of course I want it to go on the PBS I know you know I want it to be able to be in in all of the hospitals so you know everyone can access it that needs these treatments but without the data the PBS is never going to review it and I don't want it to be a treatment for the elite that that's just crazy.
0: You mentioned um, that your the clinical trial you've been working on was a phase two. So let's just um, let's just touch on that for a bit. What results mm. uh, have you been seeing out of that clinical trial you've been working on? Has it shown promise as a treatment?
1: Yeah. So we we we're coming to the end of our pilot data, and then we're just starting our big randomized control trial. So we don't have any data out of that yet. But I can I talk a, uh, yeah I can talk a little bit about the pilot study. So the pilot study um, revealed to us what we what we, we, we thought we would see and also helped us perfect getting our clinic set up, making sure that we um, get all of our safety parameters correct, make sure that, um, you know, our doctors were trained in this intervention as well as they possibly could do. So, you know, it was it was a learning process for us because this is brand new in Australia. Um, but what we saw in, in in our pilot data was was what I was sort of referring to earlier. Some people do seem to have absolutely phenomenal um, um benefits and get a lot better. Some people don't seem to change at all, and some people um have, have actually got worse. Um and why I why I say they've got worse is because what has happened to them is during their dosing date, the the profound um dissociation um and psychedelic experience where people can often get anxious or paranoid or very upset was so traumatic to them they've actually been left with a post-traumatic stress so you know we've got to really be careful here who we predict that um, should have these interventions the other thing I will say of caution here um, is that the the because this is so new the aftercare is really really critically important here Um, for everybody that goes through these interventions. And I've been criticised for saying this, and I don't know why I've been criticised for saying this, because actually all I want is the best care for people. Okay, so uh, there are a few things to actually think through when we're thinking about this intervention. Firstly, for people that do get a lot better, this treatment is only available for those that are treatment resistant. So if you're treatment resistant, you've had your condition sometimes for 20 or 30 years and then all of a sudden you have this profound intervention that makes all the world of difference to you and then you've got to put your life together again. And one of the things that we've found is these people have a phenomenon called the burden of normality and it is profound for them and and it can actually lead to increased risk of suicide because They've got to put their lives together. They often haven't worked for thirty years. They often have had poor relationships for thirty years, and they just don't know how to put their lives together in a world which is, you know, big and open and, and as and they've not kept up with because they've been burdened by that by their disorder. And and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it for them because that's clearly ridiculous. But what I'm saying is we've got to put the right aftercare in for people. So occupational therapy, psychosocial interventions, you. Know, know making sure that their family situation and and their support around them is as adequate as possible but then there's also the aftercare for people that haven't improved this is often their last chance Um, They've tried everything. They're treatment resistant. It tells you that this is their last chance and this hasn't worked for them. And so then the profound grief that that can cause is also a risk for us. So there are so many issues that we've got to work through um, and that because we haven't got the research, we haven't worked through them. And I'm I'm just brings a, a lot of concern to me about all these safety parameters that we need to work through and we're being pushed to do it before we're ready.
0: And so you think the support networks aren't sufficient. They're not they're, There's just not, they're, they're not ready and not available to cater exactly. for, for this. Yeah. That's going to be needed, especially as you said, for the, for the patients who unfortunately don't notice an increase in their,
1: yeah.
0: uh, in their health, in their mental health. Yeah. Um, so we've spoken about adverse effects, such as, um, the, uh, like you mentioned patients that sadly do not experience any, uh, benefit or even worse, they, you know, Go downhill rather than that, rather than um, having their their uh, having their symptoms eased. Has there been any noted side effects of the treatment?
1: So when we so th- this is something that we do know, um, you know, these these compounds have been on Earth for as long as humans have been on Earth, because, you know, a, a lot of the, the psychedelic compounds are found in plants and animals and humans have used them, you know, for centuries in in religious ceremonies and uh, uh, and the like. So in terms of their physiological side effects, we know that they're, they're, they're pretty ben, they're, they're pretty benign. They're not going to do any harm to us. We know that they're not going to cause cancers or heart disease or any kind of respiratory problems, et cetera, et cetera. But what we don't know in controlled situations and, and using them to treat mental health, what their long-term psychological effects are. And I think that that's the critical thing here. You know, when we're talking about people using them recreationally or in religious ceremonies it might be one-off it might be you know um at parties it might be you know wherever we, we might see it but they're not using it to treat their mental health condition. And that's the critical thing here. And 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 this is, I, again, I get criticised for saying, oh, but, you know, they've been used for centuries. These have been reused centuries recreationally. They haven't been used for centuries to treat mental health conditions. And we don't know what the long-term psychological side effects are. Hopefully they're fine, but we need to do the research. So when we look at the research data, there are some um, people that have been followed up for six months after these dosing days, but that's as long as they've been followed followed up. And I know we're desperate for new treatments. And I know people say, oh, well, shouldn't we just do it anyway? Well, I think it's a bit of a risk. Um, and I would prefer to have a few studies out there with some long-term safety data before I say, yeah, let's let's do this.
0: I'm genuinely amazed that you faced uh, blowback and criticism for people for saying that, because like you said, there is such a massive difference between, you know, recreationally you know taking 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 these drugs and actually using them in a clinical psychological setting that exactly. actually that actually does raise a question um in regards to you know even though it's not going to be magic mushrooms themselves but psilocybin and mdma do will they will there be um people for example who have uh, struggles with addiction. Will they be? Uh, will they be ineligible for this treatment? Will these? Will these drugs? Do these drugs carry a risk of addiction, like recreational drugs? I'm really, drugstore? really
1: glad you asked this question. And actually, I think there was some data presented at the Royal College of Psychiatry conference just a few weeks ago about exactly this question. And even, uh, and even psychiatrists were uh, uh, a little confused about this issue. So let let me tell the general public. These compounds have no dopaminergic uh, intervention, um, so they will not cause addiction, okay? So there is no risk of people becoming addicted to them. Their, their, their basis is serotonergic um, with all the, the nor, noradrenaline and oxytocin, but they, they're, they're not dopamine-based at all. Um, The other thing to um, know is actually when these compounds came into um, uh, uh, research uh, environments in the 60s, they were actually used to treat alcohol addiction and extraordinarily successfully um and and psilocybin is yet again being investigated for the treatment of alcohol uh, condition alcohol use disorders and again is showing some efficacy so the listeners should know firstly one no they're not addictive and secondly they could actually help people with addiction problems
0: that's cool the fact that you could have you could have uh Active chemicals in in drugs that are commonly known to be addictive actually work to reduce addiction. That's quite fantastic. Yeah. Do you think that um you know we've seen uh, well this study for example the potential for MDMA and psilocybin to treat certain mental health issues. There's been studies and research done for years now on the uh, effectiveness of cannabis and cannabis oil in treating physical uh, physical issues and mental issues. Do you think that there are that that there could be more disorders and more diseases and illnesses down the line that could potentially benefit from research into chemicals and drugs that have been throughout history outlawed as just recreational or illegal?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So actually the reason I got interested in this space is not for work in depression. I'm not known as a, um, a a depression expert. I'm actually a body image expert. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, so I work in anorexia and um, body dysmorphic disorder and people with extreme body image concerns. Um, and what happened was about five years ago I was just kind of pulling my hair out because, you know, we know that we're desperate for novel treatments in the body image area. Um, and we've got this influx of young people that we're, with desperate body image issues. Um, and I found an old case study from the 19 from 1980 actually, um, with somebody that had used psilocybin for somebody that uh, with body dysmorphia. And that's what got me interested in the field. And and because um, it was it was such a, a a novel era of investigation at the time, what I actually thought was I'll put together a study uh, in major depressive disorder because there was um, there were some protocols out of the U.S. and so out of the U.K. Um, and the and a person in the U.K. lent me that protocol so we could get our lab working and know what all the safety parameters were, know how to train all of our therapists, etc. So the answer is, I absolutely think that this, these these um, compounds have promise in other disorders. Um, and, and the reason that they do is what they work on is they open our mind up to novel experiences. And what we see in people with mental health conditions is they've often got a narrowing of their thinking. They've become very rigid. They, they, their cognitive flexibility is very poor and their thinking is very uh, in line with their disorder and they can't think outside of their their others. They find it very difficult to take on other opinions. And so... For the, that that's the case for a lot of mental health disorders so i'm talking about people with body image issues people with obsessive compulsive disorder uh people with eating disorders um etc um we have seen um as i refer to people with alcohol use disorder um so yeah that, that does seem to be the, the 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 mental health disorders with a lot of rigidity of thinking are have promise
0: and that, yeah that's fair it, it's it, it seems to me that there is a, a completely new area of potential treatments in, in- – in these sort of in these drugs and substances that potentially could be could be used for all sorts of conditions and you know if they are let's get the research involved let's start Absolutely. let's start testing them out and seeing what we can find yeah. one other thing that i wanted to just mention um given that you know we are based out of armadale which is uh, a regional area of australia up in uh, the northern tablelands of new south wales given that as you said this treatment requires a psychiatrist a psychologist you know for six to eight hours per session per day presumably that in itself acts as another barrier where you know people living in rural and regional areas that don't really have access to large numbers of, of these mental health professionals it seems as though this treatment's going to be a lot more easily accessed in metropolitan areas and say capital cities or large cities less so in more rural areas would that be a fair assessment?
1: I, I think it's even more sort of um, negative than that, actually. It's not going to be very available anywhere because we don't have the trained therapists. Um, so at the moment, um, and th- th- this is because the rollout was way too early. And if you, if you actually look at what the Royal College released, their guidelines in terms of being a therapist. So firstly, there is no training in Australia. For being a psychedelic psychotherapist, um, there's that is recognised by the Royal College of Psychiatrists or the Australian Psychological Association. There is no t- recognised training, so there is a recognised training course in the states and, uh, called MAPS. Um, but and we have had a few individuals from Australia go and do that training, and the, there's but there's very few of them. So the Royal College guidelines were given that there is no official training course in Australia, that um, people that become an authorised prescriber have to have um, had experience through clinical trials. And there are very few of those because there have been very few trials in Australia. So we're talking about only a handful of clinicians across Australia that have any experience and can become an authorised prescriber in the first case.
0: It almost seems a bit of a white elephant. It almost seems of a, um, it <laughs> yeah. seems as though you know we've had this. It's been approved for treatment. It's you know it's something that we can absolutely go ahead and start doing. But it seems as though there's just not the facilities available. Like sure, no. the, the TGA has approved it for for treatment. You know, hooray, fantastic! But there's no, it's there's no way to do it there's no way to actually to go through with it it's it, do you, and that just touching on what you mentioned before about the the speed of the rollout and the lack of uh reliable phase 3 clinical data or any phase 3 clinical data do you think this could potentially do more harm than good if people do not rush not rush into treatments because i I, yeah. Yeah, I i don't want to i don't i don't want to i don't want to say that people wouldn't that practitioners wouldn't be extremely cautious in mm. prescribing substances like this but do you think there's the risk of potentially because we've gone into this so quickly, doing more harm than good in the long term.
1: Look, I really hope not. Because, um, like I say, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's the opportunity there to rush into it. Because you know, it, you know, the guidelines are pretty rigid. You know, that to become an authorized prescriber and and every, all the kind of paperwork and legalities around becoming an authorized prescriber, you know, are, 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 you know, taking into account all the safety issues my concern is that it will go underground and because it's been legalized in the way that it's been legalized people are going oh look this is a novel intervention and oh look it's too costly in the in the you know the appropriate settings um it must be okay to do it let's you know going source these compounds illegally and underground and and that's really hope that 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 doesn't happen
0: there is, and that that's always a risk I suppose when things yeah. become too expensive in the yeah, proper exactly. pharmaceutical way people look for them elsewhere They're, that's yeah, exactly. a tale as old as time really yeah so exactly. in a per, in a perfect world for you um, beyond just the the phase three trials what would you have liked to have seen happen before this was legalized and rolled out? What else would you have liked to have seen happen first?
1: um official training courses for the psychiatrist I mean the Royal college weren't consulted in any way whatsoever. Um and so it's kind of so they they had to you know play catch up for four months after the um announcement they were like okay so you 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 down scheduling this but we have no trained psychiatrists we're not quite sure so they had to you know really come up with some guidelines on the fly rather than actually um you know appropriately and with the the appropriate consideration putting together training courses for their clinicians.
0: Do you think that um, your sentiments in regards to the speed of the process, the lack of training for clinicians and therapists, the uh, your concerns that you have that you have expressed are these concerns that have been echoed across the health industry. Of these,
1: absolutely, uh- yeah, absolutely. You know, so I'm a I'm a neuropsychologist by background, so I obviously wasn't um, a, a part of the membership of the the council at the Royal College that made these decisions. But all of the members talked to me about it because I do have a considerable experience. And when you talk to any of the clinicians, we all were like. Oh my goodness, this, 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 this absolutely has promise, but we're way too early, you know? Let us finish doing the really good research that we're doing and be able to um, recommend the right safety parameters, recommend the right um, the right protocols for who should and shouldn't receive this treatment. And that's a really big one, you know, who should and shouldn't receive this treatment. Make sure that we have the right data so we can get it on the PBS. All of these things that we've been talking about today, we all feel that
0: and if you is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know in relation to this study or this this treatment before we before we wrap up
1: um, I guess uh, there. I guess there are lots of clinical trials going to be um, uh, happening across Australia, so keep your eye out. Um, I, uh, my current clinical trial is running in Brisbane, uh, Melbourne, and Hobart. So um, if we, if if anyone with treatment-resistant depression in those locations would like to take part, um, get hold of us um, at Swinburne University. I mean, I know that is a little bit of a plug, but to be honest, um, going through a clinical trial is but going to be one of the only ways to um, get these interventions and not have to pay. I mean, because we don't charge anybody um, when we're running a clinical trial. In fact, we help you take part and we provide, you know, travel and reimbursements um, for you to take part. Um, I would also encourage anyone that's thinking of doing this in a, um, a, um, a private setting to really talk to their um, clinicians about the aftercare. And that, because that's the bit that really concerns me the most, um, that, that the aftercare has really been left out of the research literature today. Um, and with the profound changes that happen to people, aftercare is super important. So if you are going to go ahead privately, talk to your clinician about, about their aftercare plans.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for that uh, advice, Professor Russell, and thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Not a Ben Lewis reporting for Tune FM.